Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first three verses of that chapter. We want everybody to be able to see what we're looking at. So if you need a Bible, these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. Genesis chapter 2 is progress. We've made it through chapter 1 as we go through the first 11 chapters of the first book of the Bible over the next months together. When I was a child, my pastor dad, and therefore our whole family, took Sundays very, very seriously. Sunday was, for us, a day of worship, not of fun, and certainly not of work. Going to church twice, morning and evening, was central to Sundays in the Brown home. And because I grew up Pentecostal, and we believed having time established for how long the service would, would last was viewed as quenching the spirit, it meant the services went on and on, as long as it was deemed that the spirit was moving. It was not unusual for the evening service to go until 10 p.m. Now, some of you have heard the joke about the boy and his father who were looking at framed pictures in the church hallway, pictures that were memorializing church members who had died in the line of duty. The boy asked his dad, who are these men? His dad said, they died in the service. The boy thought for a minute and said, was it the morning service or the evening service? (laughs) Now, all of this Sunday routine for me as a boy was all fine until it conflicted with my favorite thing in the world, playing hockey. The first year that I was able to make the travel team created a problem because the travel team had games every Sunday morning. My parents made clear to me that I could play no games, no exceptions ever on Sunday. We had only two, sometimes three games each week, but one was nearly always on Sunday, so it meant that I missed a third or half of the games in a given week. Now, I as a kid thought this to be extremely mean, And I secretly hoped that someone would call Child Protective Services to rescue me. Many of you are familiar with the story of Eric Little of Chariots of Fire fame, who forfeited his chance to compete for the gold medal at the 1924 Olympics in what was his best event, the 100 meters, because the heats for that event were held on, on Sunday. Instead, he competed in the 400 meters during the week, And he won the gold medal in an upset victory. Now, my parents and Eric Little had something in common. They both refused to allow or participate in some activities on Sunday. But they did it for different reasons. My parents refused to allow hockey to have priority over church. Eric Little, like many Christians, believed Sunday to be the Christian Sabbath. And it was therefore to be a day of rest. In the case of my parents, it was because it was when the church met. And in Little's case, it was because it was when the church met and because you shouldn't do anything else that day. My parents would have actually allowed me to play hockey if the games were in the afternoon between church services. But Little wouldn't race at all any time on Sunday. But Sunday is the first day of the week. And the Sabbath in the Bible, as most of you know, is the seventh day of the week, Saturday. So why do Christians worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? And why do so many Christians believe Sunday to be the Sabbath? 
Well, all of that goes back to the passage we're going to consider today in Genesis chapter two. The first verse says this. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, this passage tells us three things that God undertook, one action and two decisions. First, the action is that in six days, God, the first verse tells us, completed all of creation, the heavens and the earth. Now, you'll remember where you first read that phrase, heavens and the earth. It was in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as chapter two begins, it's saying that God has completed what he started out to do. And he's completed the heavens and the earth in all of their vast array, says verse 1, meaning everything that fills both heaven and the earth, all the objects that were created on days 1 through 6. So he's completed creating it in all of its vast array, everything that now comprises the heavens and the earth. He's filled the heavens with the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars. And he's filled the earth with fish and fowl and plants and animals and humanity. And that's why it can be said to be, in verse 1, completed. Verse 2 says that by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. Now, in the NIV, it's translated finished in verse 2, but it's actually the very same word that's in verse 1 for completed. It, creation, was completed, and the creator was finished with his work. It means that by day 7, the universe is no longer in a process of being created. From this point on, there will be no more creation, but rather procreation and perpetuation of what God has already made. Now, the fact that creation has ceased has scientific implications. Now, we have some scientists in our congregation, so I want to apply this to their world for a moment. Among other things, in creation week, God created matter and energy. And Einstein showed that matter and energy were interchangeable according to his famous formula, E equals MC squared. And God has now finished his creative activities. So what that means is neither mass nor energy are being created or being destroyed. And that's precisely what we have in the first law of thermodynamics. And God's activity in creating was completed. And after that, he decided to cease work For 24 hours. Verse 2 again says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Now we can easily misunderstand what it means when it says God rested. We get the idea that God was tired. And so he had to take a break. Creating a universe takes a lot out of one. And so God has to take a siesta as it were. We get this notion partly because later God will apply this resting to humanity. And we know that we do indeed get tired and we do need a break to rejuvenate. But God needs no such thing. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he will not grow tired or weary. So when verse 2 says that God rested from all his work, The work that it's referring to is what's said earlier in that verse, the work that he had been doing, 
which is the work of creating. It's not necessarily that God did nothing. God sustains the universe, the Bible teaches, regularly, even from the beginning. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, my father is always at work to this very day. The basic meaning of the word translated rested is to cease or desist. And the particular work from which God ceased was the work of creation. And the Hebrew word for that work that's used twice in verse number two speaks of skilled labor. It's work that's performed by a craftsman or an artisan. The work from which God ceased was the special task of creation that he had set for himself. And now the artist is finished with that work. And so he ceases that work. So we've, as we've seen, God did not rest in the sense that he was weary. But later the Bible does say, it does say this. On the seventh day he rested, that is he ceased from that work. But then it says, and he was refreshed. But one scholar says we should think of the rest as something like the satisfaction that comes from accomplishment. And this refreshment from the completion of a task, from the exercise of creativity. So God rested in that he stopped creating and he was refreshed because he was completely satisfied with his creative work. And our passage tells us God undertook then three things. He had completed his work of creation. He stopped creating because it was complete and he was perfectly satisfied with it. And then he ceased, he rested after completing it. And then third, and most important for us, he set apart the seventh day from all the others. Verse 3 says this. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, the reasons for God setting this pattern will appear later in Scripture. You may remember the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, which is found in the next book of your Bible, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. For food, God gave them manna. But he told them not to gather any manna on the seventh day. Instead, he provided double portion of manna on day six. And he promised that he would preserve that food so that it would not spoil for two days so that it was edible. So that nothing would need to be gathered on day seven of their week. And so the Bible says this in Exodus chapter 16. The people rested on the seventh day. But it's in that chapter for the first time in the Bible that the word Sabbath is actually used. Their day of rest is applied to the seventh day of the week that God had patterned for them when he ceased from his work of creation and set that day apart. In Genesis 2, the word Sabbath is not used. And so the Sabbath day is not a creation ordinance. Sometimes people say that, that the Sabbath observance is a creation ordinance. God established the observance of the Sabbath day in creation, and therefore we should be observing the Sabbath today. And so they call it a a creation ordinance. But it's not a creation ordinance because at creation there was no order given. It's simply describing what God did, and God was setting a pattern for what he would command for, as we will see, the Israelites later. But indeed, the basis for that later command is set on day seven of creation week. Most famously, a few weeks after the manna story, God gives his Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the fourth of those Ten Commandments relates to the Sabbath day. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. This day of rest, to cease from all work, was a gracious and positive gift from God. Remember, friends, those to whom these commandments were first given had been slaves in in Egypt. And when they were slaves in Egypt, there were few, if any, days off. The gift of one day off a week was intended to be a blessing and intended to be gratefully received. And so the rest that you read about and we read about in Genesis chapter 2 was not something that God needed, but rather something that he provided for us. We need the rest that God provides. And I want us to see some implications of this rest that God gives from the outline that we provided for you. That's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, let me encourage you to take that out. And let's see what this rest that God provides means for us. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you that we can gather in this sacred hour as your people, in your presence, opening your word. We ask you, Lord, to help us to see the application of what you have for us in the pattern that you have set at creation. We ask you, therefore, to help us to be better equipped to accomplish the purpose for which you created us in all things. To bring glory to your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I say in that outline, first of all, we can rest because of a few things. The first is this. We can rest because God is more important than our work. God is more important than our work. And God, the person of God, being more important than our activity, than our work, is seen in a couple of ways. I have that in your outline. The first is this. As we saw a few weeks ago, we were made to imitate God. We were made to imitate God. You see, we've looked at the fourth commandment of the ten given in Exodus chapter 20. And I remind you of of what it says. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, but then goes on to give this explanation as to why you should do this. Here's why. For because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Now, remember, the command on the Sabbath day is the fourth of the ten. And it's important to remember where it falls in the order because the first three have forbidden the worship of other gods and the use of idols and of images. Specifically, God said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And so in the words of one commentator, the Israelites would be tempted to make images of those things which God created, either in the heavens above, on the earth or in the sea. And after they were forbidden to fashion any images in the form of any creatures in these three spheres, God then refers to the fact that he rested after having finished creating everything in all three of those, the heavens above, the earth, and the sea. And God is teaching a very important lesson about worship. Israel would be wrong to try to worship God by imitating his creatures, by making idols. But they were to worship God by imitating his actions after he created all of those things. You don't worship them, God is saying, because they are created. They are not the creator. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us that that's the height of sin is to exchange the glory of the creator for created things. And so Israel would be wrong to worship God by imitating his creatures, making idols, but they're to worship God by imitating his actions after creation. He rests, they are to rest as he did. Israel could not worship with idols, but was rather to worship, now get this, by being idol. Here's a crucial difference between false worship and true worship. We're to, we are wrong to worship God by making imitation gods. But we are right in imitating God in his response to having finished his creation. God is worshipped as we imitate his actions and his character, not as we serve the things that he created. And so here's why the seventh day is set apart. That is, set apart means holy, as verse number three says, sanctified, all related terms. It's because that seventh day signified that God had completed the creation of all things And the Israelites' observance of that showed they believed that the God of Israel was the only true and living God. God is more important than our work. And we show that when we're willing to sacrifice time, time that we use chasing matter, material things, for the one who is most valuable, God. God is more important than our work. And so we're made to imitate him. And secondly, we're made to prioritize God. We're made to imitate God, but we're made to prioritize God. We're to prioritize God in our use of our talents and of our treasure, but we're also to prioritize God in the scheduling of our time. There's an old hymn with the title, Take Time to Be Holy. Did you know it takes time? To be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. And he commands that not just of the Old Testament Israelites, but according to Peter, that's a command for us Christians in the New Testament as well. It means I have to set aside time for thought and meditation on God's word and renewal. We'll see in a bit that this is not restricted any longer to a particular day. But that holiness requirement remains. And as a result, so too does the special time set aside to foster and to cultivate it. If nothing else, it means my mom and dad were on to something when they set church over mundane things. God set a day over mundane work. Now, in order for us to grasp this, We're going to have to lose, all of us are going to have to lose the popular notion that everything is equally sacred. I've heard preachers say things like, you know, for the Christian, every bush is a burning bush. And all ground is holy ground. Well, that sounds good, man. That'll preach. And some of the best preaching is really great preaching until you think about it. I mean, here's the thing about burning bushes. If every bush is a burning bush, then what's so cool about burning bushes? Right? I mean, the, the great thing about burning bushes is there ain't many of them. And the thing about holy, that's distinct about holy ground is not the dirt itself, but who it is that met Moses on that dirt. God. In the Bible, the utensils that were used in the temple are said to be holy. How can, how can utensils, how can these inanimate objects be holy? 
Why is, why is it that they're holy, set apart, sanctified? It's because of the special purpose for which they were used out of the ordinary. So if everything is sacred, friends, hear this, then nothing is sacred. Because by definition, everything can't be set apart. And sacred means set apart, different, holy. We have to recover the idea that there is such a thing as the sacred. And one way for us to do this is for us to understand the difference between worship in the broad sense and worship in the narrow sense. Now, here's what I mean by that. Most of us are familiar with worship in the broad sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 famously says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So mundane things like eating or drinking or whatever, they all can and must be done to the glory of God. And so then we reason, understandably, well, that means that everything that we do is an act of worship. And in the broad sense, that's absolutely true. Every moment of every day, every activity, and every word that you speak are all an act of worship before God in the broad sense. But did you know the Bible teaches worship in the narrow sense as well? Time that is set apart. Material, treasure that is is set apart. So in terms of time, setting apart time for devoting ourselves to God and focusing ourselves on God. That's worship in the, in the narrow sense. And most importantly, worship in the narrow sense takes place when God's people gather together. This thus becomes a sacred, set-apart, holy time. Why? Because of who is gathered. God's people, His family, filled with His Spirit. And before the one that we gather, specially on this day, to worship Him. God is more important than our work. Secondly, I say in your outline, God is more trustworthy than our work. More trustworthy than our work. In order to be willing to stop working for any period of time, you'll stop working deliberately. I mean, you'll stop working. Believe me, at some, at some point you'll stop working. Okay? You'll just keel over and you'll stop working. That's involuntary ceasing and desisting. But to voluntarily stop, cease, and desist from working, you have to be willing to trust God. And of course, God has shown himself to be eminently worthy of our trust. I say in your outline, he can be trusted for the future. God can be trusted for the future. In the creation week, over the last several weeks, as we've gone through days one through six, we've seen that God do, what God does on one day is preparation for what he does on subsequent days. And we see it again now in his setting apart of the seventh day. It was preparation for what would come later in the Sabbath command. Hear this. His plans today always prepare for his plans later. So if you find yourself in difficulty, I don't want a show of hands, but how many of you find yourself in difficulty right now? Remember that his plans right now and the situation that he has allowed you in and designed for you right now are part of his plans for later. It's always the case with God. If you find yourself in difficulty, then you must resist the temptation 
to do as we often do. We take matters into our own hands. We get busy. I've got to get to work. Apparently, God doesn't have a plan. Let me do it. But friends, he's more trustworthy than what we can do. And he's at work in ways that you won't see until later. I see people fail this all the time, and it's heartbreaking. They find themselves in a particularly difficult situation, very often a difficult relationship, sometimes a bad marriage, and they take matters into their own hands. God surely would not want me in this situation. (laughs) If God has you in a situation, and God has said something about that situation in his word, like say, I don't know, marriage, and you find out, you know what, the guy I married is much more of a jerk than I realized, you're going to have to look long and hard for the verse that tells you, you get to divorce your jerk. But you can make one up, and I see people do it all the time. So they take matters into their own hands. They disobey God. And thereby, now get this, they foreclose on what God could have done in that situation in the future. Saying, in effect, God, you can't be trusted to handle what I'm in in the present. And even if God chooses not to change the situation, he will surely change you in the situation. God is more trustworthy than our work. And he can be trusted for what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and next year. He can be trusted for the future. And, of course, I say in your outline, he can be trusted for the present. He can be trusted in his provision for you today. If not, Jesus would not have instructed us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Because we ask God to provide just enough daily for the day because God provides what we need. Now think about this. The Sabbath command that God gave had the potential for financial cost associated with obeying that command. One commentator says, suppose you were an Israelite and the weather forecast was for a hailstorm which would arrive on the first day of the week. Now remember, you're supposed to do nothing on the the seventh day. And the forecast is on the first day there's going to be this hailstorm. Your crops have not been fully harvested, and the sixth day of the week is just drawing to a close. So to obey the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy requires you not to harvest your crops, knowing full well that the hailstorm might destroy them before you could finish harvest. And all your pagan neighbors are watching. And they would watch to see the measure of faith that you have in God to protect your crops and to provide for you. They would also watch to see what your God will do. But by obeying the commandment, a situation is created in which God can prove himself to be God Almighty. The same is true in the New Testament. For the one who faithfully lives in accordance with God's word. I heard of a professor who said that any businessman who attempts to live by the Sermon on the Mount will go broke doing so. Humanly speaking, that might be true. Spiritually speaking, it affords a wonderful opportunity for God's people to demonstrate their faith and for God to demonstrate his faithfulness. Friends, I believe that God gives us commands which test our faith and which give the opportunity for him to demonstrate his faithfulness.
That's why Philippians chapter 4 says this. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, church, do you believe that? And God puts you to the test as whether or not you believe that. If you don't believe that, then you're going to work and work and work and work. But Jesus said you can believe that. In Matthew chapter 6, in that Sermon on the Mount, remember he said famously, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food, the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus says in that passage, in that very passage in Matthew chapter 6, don't run after these things. Here's why. Because the pagans run after these things. And God is saying you set apart. You make time holy. Holy for God who is more important than our work. Holy for God, who is more trustworthy than our work. Some of you have heard me say over the years that one way for us to think about, on the one hand, being responsible. As you read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, take no thought about all these things. Wow, the eternal vacation. I don't have to go to work tomorrow. Cool. But Jesus is not saying that. The Bible commends our work. The Bible commends responsibility. But here's a way to distinguish doing what you're responsible for, but not worrying about the rest. And I've called it your circle of responsibility versus your circle of concern. And your circle of responsibility, if you want to draw it, you just make two concentric circles. And the smaller one, the inner one, is your circle of responsibility. And the wider one, the outer one, is your circle of concern. There are all sorts of things that we can be concerned about. But what we're responsible for is a subset of that. And God says, be faithful in what you're responsible for. And you trust me for what you're concerned about. God is more trustworthy than our work. He's more important than our work. And lastly, God is more sufficient than our work. God is more sufficient than our work. Now, what I mean here is that God does not that God does infinitely better work than we do. Be still and know that I am God. In one translation, that passage of Psalm 46.10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. Remember, friends, God ceased His work because it was perfectly completed. He had pronounced it very good because it was precisely as designed. And verse 3 in our passage in Genesis 2 says he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now that's literally in Hebrew. He rested from all the work which he created to make. All the work which he created to make. I can, and it, it can, this verse can, and I think should be translated. He rested from all his work which he creatively made. God the artisan. God the sculptor has creatively made his work, and now he ceases from it. Friends, God does good work. No, God does perfect work. And God had a perfect design in establishing the Sabbath, commanding its observance, and then fulfilling his command himself 
since nobody else could. The Sabbath was for a time to lead to something, no someone, much greater. I asked the question at the beginning, why do Christians worship on Sunday, the first day, rather than Saturday, the seventh day? Let me quickly show you the transition from the one to the other biblically. In Exodus chapter 31, God says this, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Now, if we're still living with the Sabbath, you understand what happens you violate the Sabbath, okay? All right, so the fact that you're all breathing (laughs) means that we're apparently not living at that time. But how did that transition take place? The Bible says that the Sabbath, and indeed the law itself, of which the Sabbath is a part, point to Christ. In fact, Jesus used Sabbath rest language himself when famously in Matthew chapter 11, he said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I believe it is no accident that in the very next chapter, this is at the end of Matthew chapter 11, the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 12, there is this controversy about the Sabbath. And Jesus' detractors, the religious leaders of the Pharisees, came to him and they said, why do your disciples work? Why do they, why do they eat? And why do they, why do they heal on the, on the Sabbath? And Jesus said this to them in Matthew chapter 12, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was preparing them for a change that was going to come, but would not come until a bit later at his death and resurrection. But at the death and resurrection of Jesus, now the end of the law has come. And so later the Bible could say in Romans chapter 10, Christ is the culmination of the law. And since Christ is the end of the law, to place ourselves under it in a legalistic way, thinking that we're still under the law for our relationship with God is very dangerous because it's tantamount to rejecting Christ. And that's why Galatians chapter 4 says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. And Paul, who wrote this, says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. And Paul wrote a couple of other Books that deal with this whole issue of the law and its relationship to the Christian. Just very quickly, Romans chapter 14. He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. How different is that from Exodus chapter 31? You do any work on the Sabbath, you're you're dead. Paul's saying there's been a sea change that has occurred with Jesus. And then in Colossians chapter 2, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or notice or a Sabbath day. So the law is done away in the Sabbath command, which was part of it. But why are we then here? Why Sunday? What caused Christians to start worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday? Well, something really big happened on the first day of the week. Matthew chapter 28, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, the women went to look at the tomb, and of course they found it empty. 
And each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all point out that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus took place on the first day of the week, Sunday. And after that, you find Christians worshiping on what became the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this instruction is given on the first day of the week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Let me just stop there. A sum of money in keeping with your income, not a tithe. That's what the law said. You set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. It may be more than what the tithe was, depending on your income. It may be less. But set aside a sum of money on the first day of the week, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then in the book of Revelation, John, who wrote Revelation, and was given this marvelous vision of the future by the Lord Jesus, says this, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and then I heard the Lord speak. And not only do you have this then transition from the seventh day to the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Jesus, the early church in the first century, but then in the first several centuries, practiced Sunday, Lord's Day worship. Let me just read for you an excerpt from something called the Didache. Didache is Greek for teaching, and the full title of this document is The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It was a manual of church life for the second century church. And here's one of the things it says. The service was held on, quote, the day of the sun. That is Sunday. And it started with a reading of the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets for a period of as long as time permits. An exhortation or homily based on the reading was then given by what they called the president. I kind of like that title. You guys can start calling me president. And then it says the congregation stood for prayer. The celebration of the Lord's Supper followed. The elements of bread and water and, and wine were dedicated by thanksgiving and prayers to which the people responded by an amen. The deacons distributed them to the homes of those unable to attend. They finally took up a collection and then the meeting was dismissed and the people made their way to their homes. And all of that happened on the day of the sun on Sunday. And so we have then transitioned because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ from the command, the legalistic command for Sabbath rest. The law is done in Jesus. But here's the marvelous promise of God in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from His. You know how you learn that God is more important than your work? You know how you learn that God's more trustworthy than your work? You know how you learn that God is more sufficient than your work? You lay down your work and you come to Jesus and you trust the work that he has done. And there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it is then that we cease acting like pagans who have to work and have to do it all ourselves. And it's then that we can say our God is more important than this stuff. Our God is more trustworthy than this stuff. Our God is more sufficient than this work. Then and only then can you truly rest. I say in your take-home truth, we can rest because of God's work. 
And in particular, we can rest because of the work of God, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that means you've got to have that peace that only he can give that rest that only he can give. How do you get that? Here's how just a moment. We're going to pray. And you acknowledge the fact that you, like I, like all of us, are a sinner. You realize you're a sinner, recognize that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin, including the sin of making yourself your own God, creating your own agenda, doing your own work, pursuing your own purpose, and then repent of your sin. God, I see that I've been living my life for myself in my own way. I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And then when we bow in just a moment, you pray, acknowledging that to God. Lord, I am a sinner. Jesus died for my sin. He's my Lord. I'm going to follow him with my life. I ask you to save me, rescue me, change me. And the Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for, again, this sacred moment. A set-apart hour. A time that is different than the other hours of this week. Because it is in this hour that you specially meet with your people. We thank you that we're able to meet on this, the first day of the week. But Lord, on any day of the week in which your people gather and invoke your presence to bring worship to you. It's a sacred time, a set-apart time. And so, Lord, we thank you for the grand privilege of, of being here. And Lord, we ask you to use what we have learned today in the hearts and minds of your people. Help us, Lord, to recognize that indeed you are more important than anything else, certainly more important than our work. That, Lord, you can be trusted and so that we can obey you and not modify your rules and not take matters into our own hands, but follow you because you are eminently trustworthy. And your work is always perfect. It is sufficient. It is complete. Oh, Lord, help us to find our rest in the work that you have done for us. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.